The title today of our teaching time is The Cosmic Share. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints meet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So this has been a very, very long road, and and we're down to four verses. And a benediction basically is something you'd put on the end of a letter, and it would, I don't know why, but I have to, I have to do that. Um, uh, uh, you, you'd basically put it on the end of a letter to, to say, this is done, we're closing it up. Um, and it's typically just a, 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 a kind of a formulaic, grace be with you. And, and Paul always did interesting ones. He always made them very theological. And so this is really just, it, it's nothing really fancy. It's nothing we haven't talked about before. But in this little benediction, there's a couple things that sort of pop out that... Um, I've had to talk about a lot in the last couple of years, not here, but in conversations with people outside the church and answer a lot of questions, sort of very philosophical questions. And so today we're, gonna, we're going to get a little more philosophical than, than normal. We're, we're going to talk, uh, do a little bit of apologetics here and, and, um, uh, because there's some things in here that, that people who have questions about God generally have a lot of questions about. So I'm going to pray and then we are going to um, get into this. Father, thank you so much for everything that you are doing for us. We, uh, we, we come before you and we ask that you would teach us something uh, about your word, about yourself, about ourselves, that you would reveal to us things that we need to hear. Um, you would calm our spirits and uh, help us to take all of these things that have been distracting us this week and burdening us and help us to sort of push them aside and, and, and put you in front of our eyes and be able to focus on you uh, for a few minutes here. Um, some of us are, are, are carrying around very painful things. Some of us are carrying around things that we feel very guilty about. Some of us are carrying around doubts, and some of us are carrying around um, all kinds of things that um, distract us in these moments. And I ask that you would help us to be able to focus right through them and focus on your word. Focus on your mission and focus on your love. Help us to be um, a church that learns from the history of the Corinthian church. And help us to um, really be able to grasp the things that they went through and learn from their mistakes so that we don't have to repeat them. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. This passage starts off with a very simple little phrase, and, and it's right there in the middle of the top line. It says, aim for restoration. Um, and this is basically Paul's, it's been Paul's three-year journey with this church, aiming for restoration, because this church was a mess. Anything that you can imagine Christians struggling with and suffering through, um, they were struggling with and suffering through. Uh, they, they were constantly turning on their own leaders. They were constantly walking away from the faith, constantly falling into all kinds of things, um, and destroying their own community, being very detrimental to the community. And, and Paul's saying... Finally, brothers, rejoice and aim for restoration. So there's a, there's a question I have here 
that I imagine, I mean, if, I, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd, 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 be, I'd be a wreck. My, my mind would just be all over the board because I, I, I tend to read things and I think, let's say I wasn't a Christian, what would I think about this idea? And, and this is very helpful to me because it helps me understand how people who uh, act um, and, and, and how they change when they come to Christ. So the question I basically have about this phrase, aim for resurre- restoration, is, is why? Why should we aim to restore people? Have you ever wondered that? If there was no Christianity, no salvation, nothing like this, um, if all there was was just this cosmic mistake, and we are part of it, why should people be restored? And, and the main thing that prompted this is, is I, was, I, I read a lot of, um, a lot of different, different genres of books, uh, philosophy, and, and things like this. And one of the guys said the first thing he did when he became an atheist um, I think he grew up Jewish. Um, he says he became an atheist, and he said he no longer had any reason to forgive. And it's the first time I had ever heard that before. And, and I thought about that, and I said, wow, that's, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, if, if you think about it, if, if there is no God, if there, there, then there's a case to be made that some people are too far gone. Um, aren't there really good reasons that we should sort of cut ties with people sometimes and sort of send them out on their own? I mean, if you seriously think about it, um, if there was no God, which I, which I, I always know people in our, some people in our community have a lot of doubts, and some of them are, have just told me, I'm, I'm an agnostic, I enjoy the community, though, and, and um, I go to all different kinds of meetings of different religions just for fun and kicks. I don't know. Um, if there was no God, um, then what is the point of forgiveness? Aren't those who have hurt you just going to get away with it forever? Um, is there no punishment? Should no one pay? Uh, does it somehow make the human species stronger by allowing those who have hurt society to continue dwelling amongst it? You have a society, and then you have people running rampant, doing evil things to hurt, that, hurt, hurt different members of that society. If there's no God, there's no reason to forgive them. There's reasons actually to do the opposite. Send them away and punish them. And, and um, arguably... You could actually say that it, it actually weakens us as a people group to not exact vengeance. Um, I mean, to exact vengeance upon people. Because honestly, if, if um, let's say the law of the land was um, the strong survive, the strong thrive, the, the, the weak die. Um, what you could basically take from that is death and separation and isolation of people who hurt society, who, who destroy us, that, that is actually something that is, that is beneficial because they're keeping us from progressing as a species. And that's what I've, I've, I've read. I've heard people talk like this. Um, and a lot of people in the world would agree that if we want to make our society more just and more peaceful and more joyful, then we need to address basically those who act in ways that, that, are, in keeping, that, that are keeping this from happening. Um, this is why laws exist, to address those people who break laws and to help us figure out what to do with them so that we can continue to be a safe, peaceful society um, in spite of the fact that they just did this. Um, so lots of questions arise. You know, what do we do with those who break our societal codes, those who commit moral atrocities and those who commit evil? Um, and, and this is a, an important question because... The church was this sort of micro-society. It was a small group, and there were people in the church who were destroying it. 
and working really hard to hurt other people and trying to take over, and it was keeping it from growing and thriving. Um, there's really a few different answers that society, uh, apart from um, basically a non-theistic society, offers uh, you know, a couple different answers. We can remove people from society by isolating them. Uh, you know, um, prison, jail, juvenile hall, Guantanamo Bay, whatever. In, in the past, there has been, you know, they used to have dungeons in their castle. And, and um, you know, there's entire island nations that, that were settled for the purpose of being prisons. Um, this is how Australia was. I, I wanted to show you some photos because um, these, these photos that I'm going to show you, um, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just start flipping them while I talk about them. Um, these are photos of basically the last um, prisoners that were in Australia. Australia was settled to be a massive prison. Um, the history of it basically, uh, in the late 18th and 19th centuries, large numbers of convicts were transported from various um, Australian penal colonies by the British government. Uh, they, they, were, they were moved into these prisons there. And one of the primary reasons for the British settlement of Australia was actually the establishment of these penal colonies to alleviate pressure on the overburdened correctional facilities in Britain. And they were shut down sometime a little later. Um, these are the, basically the last sort of, sort of generation of prisoners on this island. Fascinating pictures, isn't it? Look in their eyes. You can kind of see they're very, very human. They're, they, they're basically, these, the story behind these photographs is a guy was taking pictures, and he's like, he's a photographer, but he had a, he had a, he had a job as, as a, a mugshot guy. And he's like, I don't want to do mugshots. I, I want to do portraits. And so he decided to humanize these prisoners. Not dehumanize, but sort of show them. You know, you could see some hurt and pain in their eyes. Very, very beautiful pictures. So, what we tend to do with people, we, we sort of say, no, there's something we have to do with you. We have to punish you. We have to get you out of here. Uh, we're going to lock you up. We're going to lock you up in a dungeon, in a tower, whatever. Um, that's one way we can separate people from a society that we, that we deem are harmful to our society. Uh, another way that we have actually deemed is a good way to get rid of people in our society over the years. Not right now, we don't practice this, but, but basically by, by killing them. Uh, there, there are both small and large forms of this. There's genocide. Um, thousands of times genocide has been committed on our earth. It, it, it basically, in almost every settled continent, there has been instances of genocide where the predominant group has said our society would be better and it would flourish if this group of people wasn't here. And it gets to the point where the anger builds so much that they wipe entire people groups out. This has happened time and time and time again. Um, there was also mass prison executions. In, uh, in there, ha- there has been many instances of this. Uh, um, in the last 100 years, you know, in 1941, the Soviet Union killed about 10,000 prisoners because they needed more space for more, for more prisoners. And they... They just wiped them out. They needed to transport them somewhere, and they couldn't fit them all in the transport. They just wiped them out. And this was kind of a regular occurrence. Uh, you know, the, the, um, in 2009 is the most recent one we know about. Um, Iran killed prisoners regularly, sometimes as many as 48 a day, in, in plain view of other prisoners. This is how we deal with people. There's this, there's this thought of, 
What do we do with these people that are destroying our way of life? And this is how the world sort of comes up with ideas on how to fix this. Now, this brings me back to our our passage today because the gospel of Jesus offers us an entirely different way of removing evil from society, from our church, from society at large, and from the world, His, his ultimate plan to remove evil from the world. Restoration. As Christians, um, believing that 2,000 years ago, Jesus actually and, and literally arose from the dead, we have this unique perspective on humanity. If, if resurrection is the future, not just for humanity, but for all creation, uh, then it would appear that there's this very unique answer to sin and death and, and immorality and hurt and pain and suffering. And we must, as a people actually aware of God's future for us, respond in a way that is consistent with what we believe about Jesus and, and his resurrection. And so Paul says this. He says, aim for restoration. And this is exactly what he did in the church of Corinth. He had, in our eyes, every right to just cut ties with them and say, that was a fail. We're going to start a church somewhere else because this didn't work out. Um, Because it wasn't working out. But Paul never once looked at them and said, I'm done with you. I'm done. I'm I'm cutting this off. I'm, I'm just putting this church to death. He just kept going and going and working towards the restoration constantly, over and over and over. And, and he never puts it to pasture. And, and, and Paul lives every single day in, in, in this mindset of the resurrection, moment by moment, taking part in the renewal and redemption of all things. Um, and asking himself, what I'm doing right now, is this part of the redemptive work of God? Is this part of kingdom building? And it seems like he was constantly asking this. Um, so I, this is how Christians are, supposed, are, are really supposed to dwell constantly looking around and realizing the goal is resurrection and so we are here to take part in this and that is why um, scripture says we will stand before God and and there will be people which will say he will look at them and say I never knew you and they'll say well what do you mean you didn't know me I I was active member of the church I I had I was I I did all kinds of missions I gave a lot to I was a philanthropist and 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 he'll say, yeah, but when somebody was hungry, when I was hungry, you didn't clothe me. I mean, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't come visit me. This is all resurrection work, bringing people back, sustaining them and, and renewing them. And, and, and they said, when did, I, when did I not see you in all those positions and not help you? And he says, well, when you ignored those around you who were in these positions. So... Um, this is how Paul lived his life every single day, and this is how we are to live our lives. I, I heard it put in a very fascinating way recently. I, I don't know, I've heard this three times in the last couple of years, this quote, and nobody ever says who quoted it, so I can't either. So I'm just going to throw it up here. I've Googled it, and nobody. Google doesn't even know. If Google doesn't know, there is no answer. All right. Human beings are the noblest of creatures because they were sent to earth to co-create with God. Think about that. This is what sets us apart. This is why in the very beginning we were put here to, to be part of, not just be part of God's creation in the sense that everything else is, but to actually be the image of God here, do his work here. Most Christians don't really, really realize the implications of this, and when we work towards the healing of someone, uh, we're participating in the ultimate resurrection of everything. And when we create beauty and art and order out of chaos and inanimate things, then then what we're doing is actually taking part in the resurrection of God. A lot of people don't see it this way. Um, I was at uh, St. Peter House Church this week, and we were talking a lot about the resurrection. They just finished the book of Luke. It's a good week to 
finish the book of the Bible. Um, and we, we were talking about resurrection, and I, I, I was corrected on a quote that I gave, and I was, it was the wrong guy. So thanks, Jordan Bates. Um, uh, apparently, Martin Luther, someone asked him once, uh, they said, what would you do if you found out Jesus was coming back tomorrow? He said, I'd plant a tree. And, and I've thought about this for years, and I never really understood why he said this. And, and you know, I've heard people say, well, it's just he's, um, he, he just means that he would carry on like he always would. And I was like, I don't remember reading about Luther planting trees, though. That doesn't, that's not typically what he did. Um, and then it sort of dawned on me not too long ago, talking about the resurrection a lot. And, and I sort of said, wow, you know what? That's one less thing God would have to do. If we are here to co-create with God, then for Luther to plant a tree, creating something beautiful and, and worshipful, and he, he's just, it's a little way of, of restoring something and renewing something. And it, it's, it's a very simple way of saying, well, God wants to make everything restored and beautiful, in, including us, inside of us. So um, and this speaks to us on so many levels, and I don't want you to take this as far as you want. When everything is restored, the thing we sang about this morning, until God's realm comes, that's why I wanted to sing this on, because when, when all is restored, when everyone is fed, and when, when everyone is healed, when everyone has a home, and, and, and when everyone knows relationship and meaning and purpose and joy, that is, that is the goal of God. That is the mission of God, is, is restoration and bringing them into a relationship with Him and letting them realize everything that they need to have purpose in life is found in him. And when we realize this, we all work together to restore the things that are broken in the same way God has restored us and our souls and connected us to him in reconciliation. Um, and so this works on a lot of levels. And this works down to the very simple parts of our lives. And, and I, you know, like I said, take this as far as you want. Um, here's how I see it. In the kingdom of God, everyone will be fed. There will be none who are hungry. So, I had a thought the other day. I woke up and I sort of made eggs and toast for my, for my, for my wife and kids because who doesn't like eggs and toast? And I sort of had this thought, I'm feeding them. I'm taking part in the mission of God. This simple act in my life of doing this, I can give glory to God and say, Lord, this is a symbol of, of restoration. I, I'm feeding a young child. It needs to be fed. Um, when I take a few minutes and show kindness to my server or a stranger at a, or a gas station attendant, I am taking part in the mission of God. When I, when I mow the lawn, when I plant a garden, when I grow something, I am actually taking part in the mission of God. We tend to think the mission of God is just only on this spiritual level, but, but I, I would, there's, there's no separation between spiritual and non-spiritual. There's no, everything is spiritual, so everything is Everything that we do talks about our connection with God and, and God's plan in the world. And when I apologize to a friend and I patch things up, I'm taking part in the mission of God. And when I offer a shoulder to cry on for someone who is hurting and in pain, and I pray with them, I am taking part in the mission of God. And when I play with my child and, and, and make her smile, I'm taking part in the mission of God. You see this? So there's, there's a book by, um, I'm off the notes, I'm well off the notes. Um, there's a book by a guy named Brother Lawrence, and uh, he, it's, it's called um, The Practice of the Presence of God. And this book is a very long sort of journey of his. He was a monk, uh, a, a monk who, who spent many years 
trying to just remember every single moment right now. I am in the presence of God. I am loved. He wants to use me to restore something. And, and, and what this did to him, he writes about it. And every single moment, he says he'd regularly forget, and he would instantly try to bring his mind back to, I am loved right now. God wants me to be infinitely happy and joyful. So even in the worst possible times, he was practicing this. This is sort of a little bit of what this is. The mission of God, the presence of God should be on our minds constantly. So where the simplest little acts that we are doing, we are praising God and saying, this is good. Thank you. This is a little symbol of a, of, a, of a cosmic venture that you are on. So Paul, also in order to spur his church on to repair itself, he talks about a couple more attributes of God um, that, that they should be really emulating. Uh, verse 11, live in peace. We talked about this last week, the idea of shalom, where everything is as it should be. Everything is centered on God. Um, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So God is described as loving. We know throughout scriptures God is described as all loving constantly. Um, and there's not many postmodern Americans today who believe in you. You talk to a lot of people. Are you a Christian? No. Do you believe in God? Yes. Okay. Describe God. Um, if you take a poll of all these people, the, 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 the one thing that, that the majority of them will agree upon is the idea that God is loving. He's all loving. Now, have you ever wondered why they think this? If you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God at all, but you believe God is a loving God, how do you know that? It's not something that you can see in nature. It's not. It, you, it cannot be deduced from looking at the world around you because it's a violent place. Um, even if you look at just the animal kingdom, it's pretty violent, pretty terrifying, all right? Um, People didn't even used to actually believe like this. People didn't really... It's kind of a, it's kind of a post-enlightenment phenomenon, people saying, oh, God is, God is all loving. God is all good. Um, do you realize back in, in the ancient sort of Near East, Near East text that we have, um, the gods are described as just like us, but super powerful? Did you know that? People didn't look at God like... like Everyone sort of today does. And, and so you can, you can ask them, where did you get this idea that God is all loving? What, where, where does this come from? Really where it comes from is the scriptures, the Bible. That's the, really the only place you're going to find it. Um, sure, there's other texts that came along later, but it, the foundation of it, the start of the idea that God is love, started in the Bible. So we are very quick to hold on to that God is loving. Yes, I believe that. Um, God is just and deserves ju and demands justice and righteousness and demands us to live a holy life. So, uh, I don't believe that. But I'll take the God is loving part. And this is what we do. This is where we actually get the idea that God is love. So if you ask them what, what is the basis upon which you, they, they, they typically have no idea why they believe God is love, it just seems right to them. Um. So there, there's, there's some real philosophical problems that are raised by people today um, when they read passages like this. Um, so there's, there's one argument in particular that I've heard um, over, the last, over the last year. I've heard this argument three different times come up, and that's kind of a big deal. Um, that means a lot of people are thinking about it. Um, hold on, let me read ahead here. Okay, so the last verse also mentions the love of God. I, I just 
wanted to throw that up there. I don't really know why. Um, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So there's this idea that, that God is with you and loving you all of the time. Now, um, so the arguments that I've heard a lot lately, and, and heard, heard it again last week, um, there's, there's a philosophical argument that a lot of agnostics are using to push back against Christianity and, and the scriptures and the God of the Bible. And it goes something like this. If God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be good, but he's not all-powerful. If God allows evil and suffering to continue, because, but even though he can stop it and he doesn't, he might be all-powerful, but he's not good. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible can't exist. This is a formidable argument, is it not? It is. Um, it, it's something that I've heard a lot lately, and, and uh, I think the main proponent of it right now is this guy, Sam Harris, that I, that I mentioned recently. Um, so let, let's talk about this, because... I think we're asking things that we don't have an answer for yet. Um, first, we need to talk about God and law and morality. First, um, let's just lay this out there. If there is no God, if there is no God, then, then you really can't be talking about what it means to be good or all good. You have nothing by which to judge what all good even means. Um, if there is no God, then nature is our guide to morality, like I just said. So when you look at nature, what you see is that there's nothing more, more natural than violence. There is nothing more natural than pain and death. And in all actuality, death serves only to strengthen each and every species. And it is only through death that species get stronger, through pain and suffering and death. Um, and, and weeding out the weak and leaving the strong um, and the intelligent, this is how, without God, y you should really choose your moral grounds upon which... You look at everything. Um, therefore, the only reason we can even argue about suffering and injustice is because we have this instinctive knowledge that things are not as they should be. So when a person who, who doesn't believe in God at all says, well, then God can't be good, you have no, no grounds upon which to base this idea of the way things should be. Because you're obviously arguing that there is a way that things should be. See, the question about whether or not God exists is really of extreme importance because it has this ability to determine our actions towards one another, especially those who are weaker than us. Um, and if there is no God, all you have is these personal feelings and preferences on how others should be treated. But they mean nothing. They're not based on anything. Um, I would argue that if you're really struggling with this idea of whether or not God can be all good and all powerful at the same time... Um, it's, it's probably not really a philosophical issue for you. Um, yes, evil and suffering is, is a problem. Let's talk about this. Evil and suffering is a problem for, um, for those who believe in God. It always has been. If we're being honest about this, Christians have always wondered why God does what he does. We've always wondered this. What is God doing? What is his plan? What good can possibly come of this? Um, Look at Job 7, chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 11. There's always been people among uh, members of God's people questioning his heart. Um, Job went through excruciatingly bad times. Instantaneously, his whole life fell apart. And at some point he says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And he did. He was angry at God and he complained against God. Did you know there's an entire book in the Old Testament that is an angry letter to God? That's all it is. It's called Lamentations. People usually don't preach sermons from it for whatever, whatever purpose. Um, 
It's a book of somebody asking, how could you let this happen? Why didn't you stop what was happening? Let's look at Lamentations chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans and fatherless, and our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink, and the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks, and we are weary, and we are given no rest. And he's saying, don't you even see what's going on? We are suffering. Why do you do nothing? This has always been a thing that, 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 the, that God's people have, have wondered why God does what he does. Christians aren't people who can answer every philosophical question that man has to offer up. There will always be new ones. But I would argue evil and suffering is a much bigger problem for those who don't believe in God. It's a huge problem. Getting rid of your belief in God to satisfy your doubts caused by suffering, it doesn't fix the problem at all. It does not help you understand evil and suffering. And in fact, I would argue that suffering is actually more of an argument for the existence of God than against him. Uh, One of my favorite um, philosophers is uh, Ravi Zacharias. Perhaps you've read some of his books. Um, And someone once in a debate asked him, doesn't suffering prove that there is no God? I want to read you his response because it was... Hilarious and fascinating all at the same time. When you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume that there's good. And when you assume there's good, you assume that there's such a thing as moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not to prove. Because if there's no moral law giver... There's no moral law. And if there's no moral law, then there's no good. And if there's no good, there's no evil. What is your question? (laughs) The question itself defeats itself. There is no God because God can't be all-powerful and all-good. You've just defeated your own argument because you're arguing that there's a good which should exist. And in your view, there's not. So you have no grounds upon which to argue against good. So what can help us understand all of this? Paul has gone through a lot of suffering to get to this point. The last two really sermons that that we've talked about, Paul has been in this terrible condition. We don't even know what it is. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell anyone. And I think, like I said before, I think he he talks about a thorn in his side. And I think the reason he talks about it as a thorn in his flesh and, and not by telling them what it is, is so that they can insert their thorn into his story and look at the gospel the way he does. He is suffering immensely, and we don't know why, but he is suffering. But he's following God, and he loves God, and he trusts God, and he has hope in God, all at the same time. So what is it that can give us this hope? What is it that can help? I believe, like a couple of thousand years of Christians before me, that the cross is what can help us to understand all of this. The cross does not tell us what the answer to the question is. It does not tell us what the answer to that question is, that that we want to figure out why, why we suffer. But the one thing that the cross does tell us is what the answer can't be. The answer cannot be that God doesn't care. No one can say, no Christian can say that God doesn't care about our suffering. Only Christianity, out of, out of all the belief systems that exist, say that God became vulnerable and subject to suffering and pain and even death. In the life and death of Jesus, we see your sufferings too. 
anything that you have brought here that you have been going through. We see the sufferings of, of all people in the world. Those who, if, if you're a political prisoner, Jesus was actually a, a political prisoner. Um, have you been treated unjustly? Jesus was treated unjustly. We, um, are you suffering because of someone committed an act of murder? Jesus himself suffered the act of murder. Have you been slandered? Jesus has been slandered. Have you been heartbroken? Jesus has been heartbroken. Have you lost loved ones? Jesus had lost loved ones. Those who have been lonely, abandoned, abused, exhausted, hungry, cold, naked, Jesus was all of these things. And he knows exactly what you are feeling. And so when you go to God and you declare your suffering and and, and you say, look at what I'm going through, he says, I understand. I know what you're going through. I'm not indifferent to it. He has suffered everything that we have suffered. And the truth is that almost all people who have ever lived and and whoever will live die a much easier death than Jesus died. His death was probably far worse than anything any of us will experience. One of the most interesting things about Christianity to me is that is that there is this massive, what I call, I want, I'm, I'm coining a phrase, the cosmic share, all right? Now, here's the idea. There are two things that are shared when we are following Christ. The mission of God is the first one. And we talked about this already. The mission of God, resurrection, um, reconciliation, restoration. God shares that. That is his thing. That is what he does, and he shares that with us. It gives us purpose and meaning to exercise this mission with him, alongside of him. It empowers us to change things that we don't like. Um, We're not just polishing the brass on the Titanic, all right? I've actually heard Christians describe social work like this working for the betterment of others in the name of Jesus or working just to fix things to make the world a better place. And uh, I've, heard, I've heard Christians say, well, it's like polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's going to sink anyways. God's going to destroy it all. I don't believe that. And you're actually agreeing with exactly what non-theists believe. If there is no God, then, then scientists tell us in about five billion years, about five billion years from now, the sun will become what is called a red giant. At this point, it will grow rapidly in size and envelop all of the orbiting planets, and life will cease to exist, and we all die together. Yet even they work for the embitterment of society. In the meantime, as we plummet to our death, you are expected to work towards the embitterment of a doomed species. It's a purposeful life, isn't it? It's not. Resurrection tells us that things are not like that, that things are not as though they seem, that God is more powerful than that. So what God shares with us is really good, his mission, his plan to fix things. And and we get to exercise this hundreds of times a day if we're actually paying attention to it. Now, what's, what else is shared? Well, 
we share with God our sufferings. He has taken upon himself our pain, our sin, and he listens to you and he says, I understand. We share his victories. He shares in our sufferings and failures. We reap all of the things that he has sown, and he has reaped all of, this, all of our, our failures and our sins and all of these things that we have sown. It's really not a fair trade. It's really not. We're getting a better bargain than he is. But he doesn't see it that way because he loves us. We are his children, and he wants to gather us unto himself, and he wants nothing more than to make us feel loved and known. Second Corinthians, this entire book is this call to be unified with God in his ministry on earth. It's to put aside all of these stupid things that we are striving to do. All of these ways that we are trying to satisfy ourselves, just put them aside. Despite all the setbacks, Paul is undermining uh, people, people, you know, people undermining Paul's work. Um, despite all of Paul's sufferings, the thorn in his flesh, the constant mocking that he was receiving, the constant pain that other Christians were inflicting upon him through hurtful words, Paul's big response throughout this book was that his suffering highlights his dependence on God and that restoration is coming. It points to Christ's strength rather than his own. I can't fix this, but God can, and so I do his work. Above all, what this letter, along with the first letter, 1 Corinthians, what these letters do is, is they've provided us with a stirring perspective on gospel ministry. That we are participating, sharing in what God is doing. That is our job. Not just to pray some prayer, say we believe something, and just hang out. I could, I, I read some, somebody this week who said, you know, I, I could stand up and say, and say, you know, I, Kim Jong-un is my Lord. And you could say that all you want, and you, and you could actually believe it, but until you actually move to where he is and serve in his administration or live out his way of life and join into his agenda, then he's not. And this is what the book of James argues about. There is this argument for saying that a lot of us have just said, Jesus is Lord. We have done nothing to show that we actually believe that. We haven't acted like we're any kind of citizens of the kingdom. There has been no sanctification in our lives. We're still participating in everything we did before. Um, we, we do not care about the restoration of other people, about the world. We don't care. And if I were to look at the evidence, I would say, well, the evidence is not here to convict you of being a Christian. Upon what I see, based upon what I see, you're free to go. Paul's hope for us as readers of this letter is to be stirred to a response with holy living and complete dedication to him. And that, I think, is what we can really take from this, this journey through these two books. I, I hope you've learned a lot. I, I've, I've learned an immense amount about, about the church, um, about what our job is here. And, and, and I'm, I'm learning alongside of you. And um, I hope that God will continue to lead us. In two weeks, we're going to start the, the book of Genesis. And um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, we're going to take some time, and, and, and we're going to take communion now.
Um, we take communion every single week. If there's something that you need to make right with somebody, if you need to practice restoration, if you need to um, restore a relationship that has gone bad, and they're in this room, go find them. Take communion with them. Make it right. Take part in, in the mission of God. If you're, not, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask that you don't take communion. You don't fully understand what you're doing. I would love to talk to you about it, though. If you are a follower of Christ, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a member of, uh, of Watermark. You're free to take communion with us. We would encourage you to. Please do. This is a time when we take a couple minutes and we ask God to reveal to us the things that, that, that we have been doing that have not been living up to His standard for our lives. And, and we repent of these things. We repent of the sins in our lives, and we ask God to put them to, put them to death and, and forgive us for them. And then we come on up and take a piece of bread. We rip it off. It symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. Dip it in the wine and eat it, and, and, and we take it down inside of us. The, the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. And it's, it's a way of remembering that we should constantly be taking the gospel in, reading the scriptures, praying to God, and and remembering what Jesus went through for us. So let's pray. Father, we love you. You're a wonderful God. Thank you for this, um, these letters from this church that have survived for thousands of years so that we as Christians could sit here and, and, and think about them and ponder them. You're doing good things in our midst, and, and we are thankful. We ask that you would continue to guide us um, wherever you would have us go. We love you. You're a holy, righteous wonderful God. In your name, amen.